0: This morning I'm going to read from two passages in Matthew. The first is one I dealt with a bit more than a year ago. In fact, I dealt with this short passage I'm going to read first, Matthew 5:31 and 32 in two messages, expanding from it to try to be somewhat comprehensive, and that, that's a real understatement, but somewhat comprehensive of the subject of divorce and remarriage. And then you'll see that our main text that we come to today in Matthew 19 picks up that subject as well, but in a broader context. And as I worked on this message, I realized this one, too, could certainly stand to be more than one message because there are so many related subjects that branch off all over the place. Uh, Given our, our schedule of a guest preacher next week and communion the following week, I don't think that's going to happened, but maybe we can come back sometime to, to look at things in this passage. First here, God's Word in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries that divorced woman commits adultery. Now over to Matthew 19, where we are in our progress through this letter. By the way, I was trying to chart out how long it's going to take us to get through Matthew. I'm on August of next year. Um, that's my target. That'll mean two years in this long and And involved gospel, but it's, I hope, worth the pursuit. Listen as I read now, Matthew 19. Again, Jesus, well, he is not the only speaker here, but he will speak in Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into a region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except For marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven." The one who can accept this should accept it. This is the Word of God. I don't announce any news when I tell you that divorce in America has become not an epidemic, but the bigger word, a pandemic. With more than a million divorces happening in our country every single year, even if you have not personally been through that tragedy. It's hard to imagine that you don't know somebody close to you, a friend or a close family member, who has. And you've been touched, at least indirectly and secondarily, as have millions of people, by the sadness and the tragedy of divorce. You know, until the mid-20th century, American divorce rates remained quite a bit lower than they are now. We ask, why? What was the reason for that? Well, I don't know that I have a comprehensive answer, but one was certainly the moral force that it was exerted by fairly strong nuclear families who lived closer to one another as a rule. If you stay in the same town where you grew up, in close proximity to your parents and grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles, you have a cheering committee, a support committee, and maybe you could say an accountability committee surrounding you when marriage becomes difficult. But families don't live so close anymore. Secondly, we could say that broad social expectations and our legal system once made divorce a lot harder hard to obtain, and if you did obtain it, the social stigma was much greater. And it gave people quite a bit of pause before they would enter into that. Thirdly, the fact that churches and biblical teaching once exerted a heavier general influence on family stability and marriage than they generally do today. And in many places, of course, marriage itself, along with the divorce rate, rising that breaks marriages up, the avoidance of marriage in the first place is on the rise. People living together, you can consult the statistics. I didn't go and pull out these statistics, but you know that 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 particular percentage of the population that don't see marriage as necessary in the first place is rising. And I think maybe many people think, well, if we were not to get along, divorce is expensive and it's emotionally scarring, so why marry? I've heard fairly cynical young adults, and they're cynical often for good personal reasons, say, I don't think I even know any happily married people. If that's been your experience, no wonder you avoid marriage. Marriage avoidance is rising so rapidly that even here in good old conservative, socially conservative Lancaster County, At least a broad and rough estimate, not a scientific one, would say, in my understanding, that about a third of all the babies born in our county are born to unmarried mothers. And this is the conservative area. As you well know, in our large cities, that rate is far higher. This fall, I had the privilege to preside at what I at least estimated. I'm not sure I have a really precise record, but I estimated It was the 200th wedding that I've led in in my ministry career. It was happily my niece's wedding. And I had to really stop and think about that. There's somewhere close to about 400 people in this room. That means if all the couples I have been able to lead in marriage, in the marriage ceremony, that is, were assembled, this is it. That's a pretty daunting thing and i often wonder about those folks of course many of them are years gone by and i don't have any contact with them or any idea where they are i remember meeting a, a couple uh, after i had 15 years after i had done their wedding in western pennsylvania and i met them at a conference and they came i didn't recognize them at all you know you change in 15 years and they said you married us and and it was just an an, an interesting and amazing reunion we had After pronouncing a couple husband and wife in the ceremony, I always use a quote from our text, Matthew 19, verse 6. What God has joined, let not man separate, or the old phrase, put asunder. But I know, even when I say that, that mankind and society certainly is very busy separating husbands and wives, in all kinds of insidious ways today, both broadly of the social pressures that exist as well as individually in the relationships that, that prevail. It seems sometimes that nearly as fast as the preacher signed the, the marriage license, there's a judge out there signing the divorce decree. Now, as we go to our text today, Matthew 19, Even though divorce is the presenting issue, we might call it, brought before Jesus for his comment here in this chapter, Christ, by his reply, especially what he says in verses four through six, which is my main focus this morning, turned this into a text that is not so much about divorce as about the sanctity of marriage I realized that as I began working on this. I was thinking I was going to preach on divorce, and, and I found, no, this is really about the sanctity of marriage, a bigger, more vital, and more original subject as Jesus defined it here. He didn't let his, his enemies, you see, ever define the discussion. In Matthew's gospel, by the way, as we think about context, which is always important in rightly interpreting God's Word, I think it's no accident As the Holy Spirit guided this author, Matthew, to record these things, it's no accident that this teaching about what can go wrong with marriage immediately follows the entire section of Matthew 18, 15 to 35 that is dramatically and strongly about forgiveness. Last time we heard that all followers of Jesus Christ must forgive, those who give offense to them just as fully and completely as they know themselves to have been forgiven by God through Christ and if they don't they actually put their their entire christian sanctification we call it into question now since marriage is the most intimate of all human relationships a place where conflict and pain is experienced many times over what it would be in almost any other relationship How good of God to remind us by the positioning of the texts of Matthew here that marriage will be a premier human laboratory where forgiveness, 70 times 7, must be applied as much as anywhere else, if not more so. By the way, our text certainly lines up with the total sexual ethic of the Bible as a whole. That's a big subject. If you asked if the sexual ethic of the Word of God could be stated in a sentence, I think it can, this way. God requires from Christian believers chastity before marriage, fidelity afterward, and He values lifelong unions of wives and husbands without easy divorce seen as a way of escape. Now, with that theme today, we go into this text realizing that there's so very much that cannot be said. But I will try to see it as a whole, realizing there are many side paths we could pursue, and I won't have time to. First of all, Matthew 19, 3 through 6, asks us to realize that Jesus' disciples must prize God's creation ideal for marriage. We must prize God's Creation ideal for marriage. Now this is a turning point chapter. Whenever you see words like verse one that say when he had finished these things he left, we're thinking of a point of departure. And indeed, chapter eighteen was a unified speech in a way on on a unified subject. And now physically, Jesus is moving out of Galilee, the northern territory where he had been born and where he had been based in Capernaum for much of his ministry. He's going south, and as a matter of fact, he never goes back to Galilee again. If you combine the several Gospels and put up on a map the picture of Jesus' movements, for about roughly the next six months, he's traveling southward, and he's in the territory of Judea, gradually coming to Jerusalem and the cross. So this is farewell to his home ground. And as he goes and comes into Judea, we find here, not to our surprise at all, because we've already seen it, that his steps are being dogged by people who have their interpretations of the law of God, and they want to test his. He is a rabbi, a a law teacher, and they want to come to him and say, well, where does he fall in the various schools of interpretation? And if they can find him sort of sticking out in an odd way, they will be able to attack him or defame him or something. Now, the subject here is actually the same subject, the same uh, root discussion that Jesus addressed on his own, and I read uh, about it from chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. It was from Deuteronomy 24, where we have the word of permission or regulation that God gave through Moses about there being a certificate of divorce for a very particular cause, and that, of course, engendered a lot of discussion. In the centuries afterward, as to what should, you know, how should that be interpreted? How should it be used? And that's what's going on here. It's Deuteronomy 24 that's being referred to when people come to Jesus here, and we read in verse three, uh, and they want to know: Are you on, in the more in, uh, liberal party or the strict party? Basically, and there were these parties with particular teachers championing each. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, is the question. Divorce has been around in Israel for centuries here. It's not a new thing. And a whole social context had developed in how to approach it. What was allowable? What was not? How should it be regarded? Unfortunately, much of the discussion and many of the conclusions reached were based more in human behavior and human desires than in what God's Word originally, ideally, taught. And that should tell us if we are going to take our lessons for what marriage ought to be from the culture, from the society, we, like these people, are going to end up at odds with the Word of God. And that's where many people are today. People are very offended when they hear what the Bible says about marriage, when they hear about the fact that men and women, while, of course, equals before God, absolutely were equals before God, have different roles. Different roles within marriage and within the church. And, oh, they get all upset. Well, you haven't gone with the, you know, you haven't rolled with the times. You haven't, you're not progressive. You're stuck back there in those patriarchal times of the Bible. No, when we talk about these things, we're talking about how God defined things to be. God invented marriage. And as creator, he gave principles to govern marriage. And when Jesus was going to go immediately to those principles, as opposed to the societal popular discussion, he would immediately be in a whole different arena. He would stand out head and shoulders beyond these people whose petty debate was about how easy or how hard Deuteronomy 24 should be applied. And you look at how he... How he addresses it, as he so often does, he isn't willing to let them define it. You know, he doesn't exactly answer their question when when they say how easy or how hard. He eventually answers it, but he answers it by saying, look, you're asking the wrong question. Consider the foundation of this issue. And how was marriage at the beginning when God designed it? That's where he wants to go, and that's where he does go. He wants to prize God's creation ideal for marriage, and he takes them to Genesis. About five years ago, I actually modified the standard wedding service that I use. Actually, the order remained the same, but I inserted the fact that for a call to worship, which it had before, I really preferred to use and and asked the couple to, to use Genesis 2, 18 to 24, as the call to worship. I found I'm kind of unusual in that. I've never been at another wedding where somebody's used that as the call to worship, but I decided since people aren't really listening very well to what's actually being said theologically at weddings, I was going to hit them with the very first thing that they would hear with God's foundational ideal for marriage from Genesis chapter 2. And what we find there in in very brief summary is that in response to the fact that Genesis 2 says the first thing that God saw in the creation that he could not say it is good, was the singularity of Adam, the man. He was alone. There was no companion to meet his need, as he could see in all the animal creation. And so, of course, it tells of God creating the woman to meet that need of something that was not good. He made the woman, brought her to Adam And the conclusion of it comes in Genesis 2.24 when the text says in this all-important statement, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. There is no more important sentence about marriage in the Bible than that. That's why it's quoted several times in the New Testament. That climactic statement, Genesis 2.24, is what we call the creation mandate of marriage. In other words, marriage isn't simply a social institution that evolved as societies grew, and people said, well, we kind of have to regulate somehow men and women getting together. How are we going to control this as a social institution? Let's, let's regulate. Let's have weddings. No, that, that isn't how, what happened. It was God who actually laid down the foundational principle of marriage, and we call this one of his creation mandates, an institution of God that predates the law of God and predates human society in general. There are several others of these, by the way. The Sabbath is another example of a creation mandate, and we could talk about those, but time doesn't allow. But they are institutions that are at the very root of God's ordering of humanity, and marriage is primary, the source of families, and families, of course, in God's eyes, are the basic building block of society as a whole even before we talk about government or anything else we talk about marriage the basic root of human society now genesis 2 declares something like this it says that when a man marries he enters into a relationship he's never been in before that takes precedence over the most sacred relationship he was in before that and that was his relationship to his parents honor your father and mother That command never goes away. You never stop honoring, but you enter a different relation with your parents. You actually depart from that as your primary relationship on this earth and enter a one-flesh relation with a wife. Now, one-flesh means something more than just a polite way of talking about sexual intercourse. It's a much bigger word. It means the total bonding of two lives. The Bible intends it to talk about that deep joining of a man and woman who take vows before God and enter into something so profound that in a manner of speaking, a new person actually emerges from the two of them. Because they have such intimacy of mind, emotion, body, spirit, worship, everything else, that a new person actually exists that did not exist before, where there were two separate persons. It was the Father's will that a man and a woman, spiritual equals before God, would come together in unique roles, complementing one another, fulfilling one another within a circle of absolute trust based on intimacy and lifetime commitment. That's the ideal. Now, intimacy, by its very nature, requires, of course, exclusion of things, right? If you're going to be intimate with another person, you can't be as intimate with 20 other persons. In fact, you can't even be as intimate with one other person. In the kind of intimacy we're talking about, it requires exclusion. It requires a wall or a hedge that is built for a space that nobody else enters. And so at the wedding, when we say, until death do us I always wonder what people are thinking when they say that. Are they thinking, I'm just repeating a sort of conventional phrase that's part of the marriage, or do they really understand that they're taking the biggest step of commitment they will take in their life? I will follow this commitment until I die, until one of us stands weeping at a grave and says goodbye to the other one. And I will not allow a third party to breach this private garden, this space that God has made for us to dwell in. If anyone does, they are trespassing upon a creation of God. And by trespassing, they are violating it in such a way that they may even destroy it. That's the point Jesus was making in Matthew 19, 4-6. Marriage is not a casual thing. It is not undertaken lightly or, or on a whim. For you are being asked to cleave. That biblical word isn't used. And actually, the interesting thing about the word cleave is we have a usage of it that means almost the opposite. You can cleave something. You know, when you're a butcher takes a cleaver and cuts the meat, he's cutting it apart. Well, that may be confuse you, but the biblical word to cleave means to join, and it means to join in such a deep and strong way that you are bonded for life without exceptions. The creation mandate of God, put in context of the whole biblical picture, was for chastity before marriage. You don't have this union without the vows, without the commitment. Fidelity after marriage and lifelong union of wives and husbands who do not view easy divorce as a ready way of escape. And just as Jesus challenged these people who said, you're asking the wrong question, he challenges you as his disciple. Do you prize God's creation ideal for marriage that actually regulates everything else about sexual behavior? It regulates what you do as a single person, It regulates what you do as a married person. Do you value it? Do you prize it? Do you cherish it as God's ideal? Secondly, I want to go to verses 7 and 8, where another point emerges. And this time, Jesus' disciples are seen as those who refuse to view divorce as a convenient escape. You can see the approach of these Pharisees. The interesting thing is, Pharisees were people who prided themselves on really living scrupulously up to every detail of the law. And yet, really, their intention here is to say, "How much can we get away with? You know, how loosely can we act and still be within the law?" In your opinion, Jesus, what options do we have to escape this binding covenant of marriage if we get tired of it? We could go into the whole discussion that they had. You know, there were rabbis that said, absolutely and only when adultery has occurred, that's it. That's what Deuteronomy 24 says. There were others who stretched it. No, if you get tired of your... By the way, it was the men who did the divorcing. The wives were not allowed to divorce in that patriarchal society. And it was... There were those who said, well, if a, a man looks at his wife and he's tired of the way she looks or... You know, she doesn't fix herself up good enough anymore. He can say, forget it. I'm writing out this certificate as she burns the toast. There was one rabbi that literally said if, if she prepares his meal the wrong way, he could divorce her. That was the most permissive, of course. Well, these guys made a crucial error when they asked this question about Jesus. What can we get away with? And notice a mistake they made when they say it said Moses commanded this certificate. That was an error on their part, and Jesus picked up on that error right away and, and did not go down the avenue they were paving. For he said, Moses permitted you to divorce, not because it was God's original desire, but because of your hard hearts, your sinful hearts. It was not this way from the beginning. Now, I've told you I don't intend to enter into the full issue of what is biblically recognized divorce, but just review it a little bit here. The Bible nowhere commands commands that a divorce must occur under any circumstance. It does define one situation, at least in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and here again in 19, the particular concession or permission of God when there is a certain violation of the marriage, that it can be set aside and viewed as no longer a marriage. And that is all centered on the discussion of the Greek word porneia. Any of you know this? You recognize the word, probably. It gives us the word pornography. It's a broad word. It does not just refer to specific adultery on one marriage partner. It actually refers to sexual sin of any kind involving another party. If that occurs, Jesus has taught us in Matthew 5, in Matthew 19, that marriage can be broken. Presumably the innocent party would say, I cannot tolerate this any longer. I will accept what God allows and break the marriage. But it's not that that is commanded to occur. Because even Pornea can be forgiven, and the marriage can be rescued. Biblical examples abound. Hosea, remember that stark and amazing example of the prophet Hosea, which God gave as a lesson for Israel of what he himself was doing with a rebellious, adulterous nation that spiritually turned against him and committed adultery with other gods? Hosea was commanded to go buy his wife out of a slave market, where she had descended into the depths of prostitution with many men, Hosea was told, go buy her, take her back, protect her, and love her as your cherished wife. People must have been amazed if they knew the story. But no less amazing, actually, is the story that's right here at the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. The story of Joseph the carpenter, who had every right, at least superficially under the law, to say when his fiancée and and being engaged was a legal legal attachment in those days, not, you know, just the friendly thing it is now and where the legality only kicks in at the wedding, being engaged was legal. And Joseph would have been allowed under the standing law to actually divorce Mary. In fact, Matthew says he thought about doing it. He thought seriously about doing it, quietly. He didn't want to embarrass her. He didn't want to bring harm on her. But God turned his mind, and God showed him he did not need to do that, and he took her as his wife. And God, of course, knew that Mary had not been unfaithful, that he was doing something miraculous within her body. The hard attitudes that God designed that would empower a biblical marriage are fairly simple to state and very hard to live up to. They are self-denial and self-giving. Self-denial and self-giving is what Joseph certainly showed to Mary, wasn't it? He took on a degree of humiliation, I'm sure, when uh, people started to notice that Mary was pregnant and, oh, that Joseph, how come he's not? And, you know, there was all kinds of talk over the back fence. We are asked to humbly seek the other person's good. By seeking that other person's good and putting it first, you see somebody starts seeking our good. The other person does. And and you don't get satisfaction and delight in a marriage by going out and grabbing that. You do it by serving the other person who then ideally serves you. And so your service rebounds to bring you great satisfaction in that relationship as you cherish your spouse. that's the ideal. Do we live the ideal? Well, we don't because something called sin in the historic fall of man came into the world and affected marriage along with everything else. Sin made self-denial and self-giving into unnatural attributes. And marriage, just as, as Adam was told, you know, it's going to become hard. You've lived in a lush garden. Now you're going to have to scratch the the dry ground, and it's going to be hard to raise crops. In a sense, the curse came on marriage as well. It became a hard labor. There's a curious uh, item in Genesis 3 where God is announcing the curse upon man. Genesis 3.16. Many people don't notice this or don't understand it if they do notice it. Genesis 3.16, the Lord is speaking to Eve about receiving the pain of childbirth as part of the curse. And then he says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Many people don't really enter into the depth of what that means or understand all that that means, but I side with those who think there's a real depth there, that what God was referring to was the fact that Eve's desire wasn't just going to be a natural and good desire for her husband. It was actually going to be a desire to replace him, to usurp him, to usurp what should have been his benevolent authority over her as the leader of the relationship. James Boyce has a, a good defining couple of sentences about it. Listen to what he said. He said, the rule of love by which God created the man and the woman to function as partners was replaced by struggle tyranny, and domination of one another, and the infamous battle of the sexes leading to feminism, male chauvinism, and every other abuse was born in that garden in Genesis 3.16. Even marriage became affected by the curse, and now our self-seeking pride tends to reign. Marital love is not so easily based on mutual submission of the kind described in Ephesians 5. I read that at a wedding, Ephesians 5, you hear it at almost every wedding you go to, and it describes such an amazing ideal that we would have the love of Christ that gave its all to serve another person. I wonder if people are just thinking the Bible is nonsense when they hear that, because they know that's not their own lives. And yet, that ideal can be realized by people who are new creatures in Christ, realized imperfectly, of course, but realized as we confess our sin, as we crucify our own rebel will, and as we daily ask God for his amazing grace that's the only thing that will sustain us in living humbly for another person. We're going to fall on our faces time after time after time. We go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I have not lived toward my wife as I should have. Give me grace. And you even go to her and say, wife, forgive me. And God gives grace. Well, what we find here is that even though God says in a dramatic statement in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, He hates the breaking up of covenants made in His name, he nevertheless recognizes divorce under the limited circumstance stated by Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's compassionate for our weakness. He knows we're sinners, and he knows we're going to fail this way. I would encourage you. It's not an advertisement, but if you want more detail on that, the two sermons that I, I preached on that text of Matthew five thirty one and 32 are called Biblical Divorce and Remarriage 1 and 2. Ask for them as a CD if you want to get them and get a fuller development that I'm giving here today. I'm not even trying to go into things that I dealt with there. We saw when we studied that, that if divorce occurs for pornea, sexual sin, God allows it. He allows the innocent party to sue for divorce. And the marriage is ended, according to that ground. Later on, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 gave a second ground that we recognize in the church, divorce for abandonment. We believe that when either of these exceptions occurs, biblical divorce occurs, and the innocent party is free from that condemnation that even their remarriage would be shadowed with sin. If they are biblically divorced, they can biblically remarry. Now, somebody's going to ask, well, wait a minute. What about verse 9 here? Doesn't it say that, that if the divorce occurs and uh, the person remarries, that's adultery? Read it, please. Read what it says. It's talking about the divorce that is non-biblical. You see, if anyone divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another, they commit adultery. He's talking about adultery and remarriage for those who are not divorcing biblically. But even that, in the grace of God, is forgivable. When I preached on this subject a little over a year ago, a member departed from this church because all he heard was that his divorce was unbiblical. He did not hear something I thought I said loud and clear, that God's grace even covers Wrong divorce. Are we going to say God's grace cannot cover the person who may come years after a wrong breaking up of a marriage and say, Lord, I can't put it together again. It's all broken. It's a mess. I realize what I did. It was wrong. Forgive me. God's grace is certainly big enough for unbiblical divorce. It is not the unforgivable sin. But Jesus prized the sanctity of marriage in a society of his time that relentlessly sought to cheapen it, and the relentlessness has increased now. And what he's saying to us is that Christian discipleship cannot be based on a desperate search for loopholes to escape God's ideal. Thirdly, and very, very quickly, boy, I am really out of time. You're going to just give me three minutes here. Matthew nineteen ten to 12. The Pharisees left. The disciples reacted. They said, Jesus, this is hard stuff. Wow. If this is the situation, it'd be better never to get married at all. Jesus says, yes, you're right. Not everybody can accept this. Marriage is a gift. Those who receive the gift should know they're in for a great need of the grace of God and much prayer and much forgiveness. Chastity before marriage, fidelity after marriage, lifelong commitment of a partner to another without cheap divorce. This is a high ideal. This third point says this. Disciple of Christ, cherish the gift of marriage if you have it for as long as you have it. Jesus called it a gift. It isn't given to everybody. Why? Well, that's not an easy question to answer. Lots of reasons, circumstantial reasons, biological reasons. Some receive the gift and don't. Some wish they would receive the gift and don't. I would like to ask you as a follow-up assignment to this message to go and read later on today all of 1 Corinthians 7. It's a wonderful chapter about being content in whatever marital state or single state the Lord calls you to live in. You know, remaining celibate as a single person in a society that promotes sex in every single TV commercial is no small task. It's a daunting task. Nowhere in Scripture is celibacy a form of spirituality that is greater than being married. Absolutely not. 1 Corinthians 7 says remaining single is a good thing. But it also says it's better to marry than to burn up with your lust. I believe Christ is saying here to you who are single, it's not wrong for you to desire marriage. By all means, do that. Even in middle age, God may have reserved a partner for you later in life than other people. But do not let that search, that desire for marriage, become your consuming ideal or idol is the better word, your idol, so that you strain towards it and you're stressed by it and you're ready to accept a marriage proposal that may be hasty and tragic for you. Pleasant emotion, good feelings toward a person are not a basis for lifelong commitment. And if you need to, seek advice. In fact, you all should seek advice. If you're thinking of marrying someone, consult a mature spiritual leader and be ready to listen to what they tell you. You'll bring great sorrow on yourself if you marry, for example, an unbeliever, thinking that that's the only person who's ever going to ask you. Marriage often begins with people seeking to get when it is really about giving. I wonder if the people who could teach us the most about this are the blessed elderly widows and widowers of our congregation. We don't think of them as people to learn from, do we? Some of them could be eloquent. In just a few sentences, they would tell you about what a gift, a strong and satisfying marriage was for decades of their life. It's now ended by death. I think they would say to you, cherish the gift if you have it for as long as you have it. Let each of us seek what is God's calling for us and seek to be content in it. And ask God for the grace to live either as a single person, as a married person seeking the best of the other, or even as a widow or widower remembering with gratitude the gift that God has given. All our failures, whether in marriage or divorce or singleness, can be absolved as we bring them to the blood of Christ. Freely and forever, God can forgive. God can empower along the lines of this great gift which comes from Him. Our Father, every one of us needs to think about this in some manner. Young people need to think about it. Thank you for the wonderful gift you made. We abuse it we trample on it, forgive us. Give us grace. Give us forgiveness. Give us your power and enabling to live in ways with one another that would honor and glorify you for Jesus' sake. Amen.